Hello there. You're listening to Sasitup podcast by Sashwath and Oscar where we speak with startup founders, venture capitalists and some of the leading talents in the world. We listen to their personal journeys and share their stories that shape their world view. Kathy Go is an advisor at Antler India. Previously, Kathy was the CEO and co-founder of Dunia Labs, building developer tools for decentralized applications. She was also a founding team member at True Beacon, a new age asset management company formed by the founders of Zerodha and led early stage venture investment in companies such as Clink and Stay Curious at First Principles, an early stage seed fund in Bangalore. She's the co-author of Myth of the Entrepreneur, a book on social entrepreneurship published by HarperCollins India. Hello there, Kathy. How are you? Hey guys, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for your time as well. Why don't you tell us a bit about your journey so far? We'd love to hear more about yourself. Sure. So I think, you know, I've had a pretty serendipitous journey, at least career-wise. I'm a first-generation immigrant. So I think, you know, growing up for the first six years in China, moving to Canada, then moving to the U.S., you do get into a mindset of being adaptable to new environments, of learning quickly, of absorbing, whether it's culture or information or, you know, just new environments around you. So I think that was really the inputs to my upbringing. Um, I ended up studying philosophy and economics at Columbia, had a wonderful education, met many smart people across various domains, and that was super inspiring. But I think that for me, you know, I always was a little bit of a rebel, didn't really want to take a traditional path. So ditched a lot of my placement offers at the end of college and decided to come to India and, and write a book about social entrepreneurship. I figured that, you know, at least when I'm young, I have more optionality, fewer kind of, you know, requirements in my life that allow me to take risks, right? So I decided when I'm young, just go for some passion projects and I'll figure everything out later. Ended up in India, was researching, writing this book with an Indian entrepreneur actually, which ended up being published by HarperCollins. I think that actually serendipitously was a great turning point for me because it introduced me to two things. One is that it introduced me to entrepreneurship. I grew up in a very middle-class, first-generation immigrant family. Everyone in my upbringing was extremely risk-averse, our professionals. And so getting another perspective on, you know, how does an entrepreneur think? What are the kind of big bets that can be taken? You know, what does that life look like? I think that was very inspiring and a first interaction and, and experience for me. And I think the second thing was about India. Um, I think what excited me about India was just, you know, the ability to really solve fundamental problems versus derivative problems, being in an environment where things are growing and changing very quickly. And I think especially in the venture and tech environment, you know, over the past 10 years, it's it's really, we're really just seeing the new generation of, you know, entrepreneurs, startups, opportunities, Indian companies going global. So I felt that infectious kind of energy. So that's what the book project brought me to very great experiences. One, entrepreneurship, second, you know, India. And so I thought, how do I take this into the next chapter and actually, you know, try to start off on my own career? Um, a batchmate and I at that time were doing a lot of brainstorming. He's Indian American. Um, we met at Columbia. He's studied math and comp sci. And we were both pretty active, actually, since 2015, back in school in the crypto scene. Um, back then, there were like a lot of early stage, you know, Ethereum developers. Things were just starting out. I think for a long time, we decided not to do startup. 
because the space was just shaping up. There were many governance concerns as well, and we weren't sure where regulations were going to end up. But in 2018, you know, after I'd already spent some time writing this book and spending some time consulting various projects, we decided, why don't we take a shot? So yeah, we built Dunya for over the course of about two years. Our thesis at that time was, you know, why don't we look at the application side of the business, not the asset side. So look at people building decentralized applications, building dApps, and how do we create tools to make it easier for traditional developers to become dApp developers. So picked a couple protocols, built out a couple tools, and it was a great learning experience. I think, you know, when you're young, uh, one thing when I look back is that I really had zero idea what I was getting myself into. I think that happens a lot with first-time founders, you know, because nowadays it's 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 become so naturalized to be what they call a founder, right? I think that even if you look at 10 years ago, whether it's in the U.S. or in India, obviously, less than 1% of, of any graduating class would have that as their aspiration, right? Now it's easily 10%, 20%. Like this path has become very popularized, very normalized. But I think when you're young, you also don't fully internalize exactly the responsibility, liability, the kind of long-term thinking that you need. And I think that going through that dunya experience, whether it's the things we did well, or especially the mistakes we made, um, it's definitely made me a better VC because it's given me the ability to have a lot of empathy for founders. It's also given me a lot of humility that, you know, all these things that we ask for from founders are actually extremely tough, whatever life stage they're in. Yeah, so worked two years on Dunya when we took the hard stop to kind of shut the business. You know, I had a big decision point, which was, do I stay in India or do I kind of just chalk this up to a three-year adventure and, and leave? And I decided to double down. So I'm here and now working in the venture ecosystem because I think that's the best way to put some of my skills to work in the broader ecosystem and also learn more about this market. Awesome. So you were a co-founder at Dunia Labs as well. And of course, it would be an, a journey with a lot of ups and downs. What were some of the key learnings that really stick in your head? Yeah, I think one thing is just that, you know, people always say that when you start up, you should have conviction. I think conviction in an idea is definitely required, but more so than that, it's about conviction over a super long period of time, right? 10 years. Like how do you gauge when you meet a founder, whether or not they can take that 10 year commitment and that's their mindset? Because when I look back, you know, I love the blockchain space. I love a lot of people who are building things there. I do think it's going to absolutely revolutionize not just financial systems, but potentially the infrastructure, the internet. But outside of that, you know, I think the founder market fit was weak in the sense that, you know, this is deep tech. It's going to take close to 10 years, I think, even from today for those paradigm shifts to really come to reality. And looking back, you know, I think that I underestimated that time commitment and maybe I wasn't the best person to make that 10 year commitment. Right. So that was one big learning. I think the second learning is just. Yeah, especially in deep tech or places where markets are less defined, the early strategic decisions you make can determine your destiny a lot. Like, for instance, for various reasons, we didn't want to get into the asset side of the business. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of projects nowadays, they either issue crypto assets like tokens or they are managing crypto assets, like whether you're an exchange or you're a custody solution, you're a lending solution, even DeFi, right? I would call that all in the asset side, we specifically took a call to work on the application side, which is when you're using dApps that obviously do have crypto assets involved, but in many cases, like nothing about what we were building, touched, facilitated, owned, issued, you know, these types of assets. 
And I think what has happened even in the last four years is that the asset side of blockchain has blown up. Um, and I think the application side is still rather lackluster, right? Outside of most of the DeFi or trading kind of, you know, these lending protocols, you don't hear people saying that, oh, I, I use this um, DAP, you know, that just does non, let's say, finance trading, et cetera, things. So that's a fundamental call that was wrong. And I think when you're in a market that's evolving very quickly, but also is just getting formed. Yeah, those those decisions can be really deterministic. I think the things we did right was, you know, focused a lot on building a team. I always said, you know, as CEO, I only had three jobs. Basically, one is to set the vision. Second is to make sure we have money or have, any, have even more money. And the third is to make myself basically operationally obsolete, right? Like there's always someone smarter who can do a particular function than I can. And so I think we did well on three for sure. We had a lot of really bright people on the team. Even when we shut, one of the things I was proud of is that, you know, everyone seemed to have had a good experience and was upset that, you know, it was ending, but in a way where there was quite a bit of goodwill. So that's something that I was proud of. So Kathy, on your website, you write, you consider India as your home and you're building and investing in India, one of the most exciting, but also misunderstood markets in the world. What makes the India ecosystem so special for you and why is it misunderstood? That's a great question. A big question, uh, Oscar. But I think excitement wise, I think the reason is that we're really just reaching a takeoff point in terms of the maturity of the ecosystem. I think back in, you know, 2010, etc., you were just seeing that first wave of e-commerce payments companies kind of scaling, you know, the cohort in terms of people who had built their early careers in strong product companies was still very small. The number of people who maybe had global exposure was also definitely probably a fraction of what it is today. But if you look at the past 10 years, I think a couple of things has, has happened. One is that, you know, diversification of categories. Now you just have successful product companies in variety of categories, whether it's B2B, B2C, you know, SaaS, you guys talk about, right, and various different types of categories. And out of that, you have huge amounts of talent who have seen and traveled that zero to one, one to 10, 10 to 100 journey with some of these iconic companies and really now have this global exposure, have a sense of what scale means, have a sense of playbooks and, and in way more categories than just e-commerce or payments, right? So I think that that has meant that on the supply side, you have, you know, 100x today, what you might have had in 2010 at any given time, maybe even 1000x of smart people who know what they're doing and have ideas and have the confidence. And there's also money in the ecosystem, right? Like there's plenty of dry powder across all the VCs. So I think that that's really interesting that this is the first time we've probably seen that level of maturity in both the founder ecosystem. I think the reason why it's misunderstood is that, you know, India is still a tough market to crack, right? I mean, it's it's a place where people who are outside, I think, are overly optimistic, like this whole narrative of, you know, India is the next China has been there for like the past 15 years, but structurally, the market is completely different. The entire economy is very different, right? The challenges of doing business, I think people, entrepreneurs in this country know way too well. And I think people inside India are maybe a little too bearish. People outside are a little too bullish <laughs> because when, when you do do business here and you see all the friction points and, you know, the trust issues and government regulation and low ability to service tier two, tier three, just due to GDP per capita and vending capability, you know, it's a, it's a tough market to crack. I think it's, it's exciting. And I think the next 20 years, we'll see a lot of growth. And I'm also betting on the fact, one of the key theses we have at Antler, especially 
is that maybe India will just be able to also create a lot more global businesses. We've seen this in some SaaS categories, but I truly believe that whether it's in consumer categories, fintech categories, you know, because the world is becoming flat. So if you are like, let's say in Bangalore, working at a Gojek for three, four years, you know, you've seen just as much as what someone I think in SF and a product company would have seen. Why can't you build the next Stripe? I think that the entire boundary of like being an Indian founder and having to build in an Indian company, whether that's a Me Too company or an India specific company or blah, blah, those boundaries are going away, which I think also makes, you know, our fund, at least we have a focus on what is the future of boundary list companies where Indian founders can really build world defining companies. Awesome insights. As an early stage investor, what are some of the signals you see in a company and how do you track it? Could you share how investors take their bets, especially in early stage investments? Yeah, I think that it's always like a basket of parameters, very hard for one to determine the other. But obviously at a very early stage, especially where Antler plays, which is pre-seed slash true seed. So, you know, we might in many cases be the first check. Obviously, a lot of indexing on on the founder, right? Because at that time, whether it's market idea, et cetera, almost everything can change. But the founders is ultimately where you're taking the bet. So in those cases, I think there's been a lot written about grit or hustle or insight, et cetera, et cetera. But for me, I think the two most important things, one would be some kind of unique insight, because at the end of the day, you know, if the insight is not unique, then the question begs, you know, why can't somebody else just do this, A? And if this is not a unique insight, then why hasn't somebody else done this, right? There might be structural issues or whatever else it might be. So we do look for that very deep, unique insight that has come from some kind of deep experience in consumers sometimes. Maybe it's just intuition. Maybe it's just deep expertise. So that's something we really look at. And something else that I personally look at a lot is self-awareness. I think the reason for that is that at an early stage, what's important in the zero to one getting to PMF is very different from the one to 10 when you're just trying to create growth playbooks versus the 10 to 100, where it's really about institution building, right? Three very distinct phases. And when you're taking a bet on a founder on day one, you want to see them at 100, right? Like that's the only reason you would take a bet, which is that you believe this person can actually go through all those stages and evolve as a founder and as a person and as a leader. Sometimes people who are really good at the zero to one completely blow out at the one to 10. And I think the one thing that is able to stop a founder from that is self-awareness at every different point, understanding where you need to augment your skills, understanding where you need to augment your team. And I think without self-awareness, it's just extremely hard to push exponential personal growth, which in almost every single startup trajectory is absolutely required. What's your viewpoint on cross-border startups as well? I mean, in this remote economy, do you think there will be more SaaS startups working in distributed teams, teams which are based out of, you know, they co-found from different geographic locations as well? Yeah, I think that the SaaS, like the India-US SaaS corridor is already pretty well established. There's people in the ecosystem with very refined playbooks around whether it's product or growth or inside sales or, you know, just product-led marketing and growth. So there's plenty of playbooks out there and, and also just networks where you can learn and do that. I think what's interesting right now is that we're coming into some newer categories. So for instance, you know, when I was at First Principles with Nitin, we invested in a company called Juno, started out as a as a crypto lending protocol, actually, but they went through Surge and, and now they're actually literally sitting out of Bangalore building a neobank for Asian Americans in the US. And I think that that kind of ambition and that kind of like, you know, 
why, why can't we do it? Right. We understand this demographic. And again, it comes back to the self-awareness thing where the gaps where the team obviously needs some local awareness, they're aware of that. And they've gotten people on their team to lead those functions and inform those decisions. Right. So for instance, when you're building something, maybe fintech or consumer, obviously you have as an Indian founder, maybe you should over index on the consumer insight, you know, learning piece, because that is not necessarily intuitive. But if you do the homework and you make sure that you're getting that piece right, there's no reason why everything else can't be done by that founder rate. So I love that kind of scale of ambition. I think we'll see more of those hopefully coming out of India, whether it's consumer, whether it's fintech, you know, et cetera, taking that really global first approach. So Kathy, we would also like to talk about a topic which Sashwat and I found super interesting. You write a lot of poems and you do a lot of photography, which you then release on your website, right? So we would like to know how does these activities help you in your personal life? How does these activities also help you in your business life? Thanks, Oscar, about asking about that. Sometimes I, I don't know if it, it helps me in my business life necessarily, but When I look back, like in college, you know, and if you had told me, oh, in three, four years, you're going to be starting a startup and then you'll be doing tech VC, I would have looked at you and been like, no way, dude. I mean, I was a born and bred artist, you know, I was uh, wandering around reading philosophy, writing poetry, trying to figure out the meaning of life. And when I look back, I think that one thing it's definitely helped me with is just the core activity has always been creation and something creative. I think whether it's especially that zero to one early stage, there's a lot of corollaries that I draw, you know, creating something out of nothing, dealing with uncertainty. I mean, at ve in very different functional everyday ways, but that mindset and that comfort, that kind of zone is a little bit similar. I would also say that these things keep me sane and grounded for sure. I think one of the gripes I have with the startup ecosystem is that It glorifies a lot of things that may not be what is actually important in life. The whole valuation and metric chasing, the whole fundraising as like a status symbol, you know, and, and especially founders who end up actually creating massive wealth, but not knowing how to deploy that or who they want to be in, their, in the world as an identity, as a human being with not just things, successful things about them, but also responsibilities to the world. Those things are super important to me. You know, my view is that I want to be sorted up here before I, I'm, I'm sorted in, in the public eye or, or with external success or anything like that. So that's my philosophy. And I think that those things have really kept me grounded and helped me remember what's, what's really important. I really like that. And you also mentioned when you look back on the past three years of your life, you want to infuse more waiting into your life because a lot of times the best decisions are a result of taking a step back from daily business or from daily life. What I would like to know, what does waiting mean to you and what were the signs for you to take a step back from daily life to get this clear mind, this focused mind? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, when I was writing this book with this uh, Indian entrepreneur, he had a very interesting um, kind of method of working where this guy, his background was, a, you know, also first generation kind of entrepreneur, born and brought up in Hyderabad. And then when he was 25, he went to Bombay to try to build a, a payphone company or build a company in the telecom space. And he was only 26 years old at that time. And he maybe raised like $30 million dollars at that time back in 1998 in India, right? Which is a huge sum of money, especially as a mid-20s kind of entrepreneur. And one of the things that I found really interesting was when I went in and visited his old MD. The MD was actually maybe 30 years older than Ravi, who was the, the CEO founder. And I was like, what was that working relationship like, et cetera? And he was like, you know, Ravi was very deliberate in the sense that he would maybe spend just three hours in office every day. 
And his response to everything was, you know, every single year, I only need to make three or four decisions that make 90% of the impact on the outcomes of my business. You know, the everyday stuff, chasing this deal, this email, this blah, blah. He's like, all those things are just noise. It'll make me feel important. It'll make me feel busy. But ultimately those four things, that's my goal. You know, those every year, like make those four decisions that bring 90% of the results. And I think that was definitely an initial um, inspiration for me where I was like, yeah, somebody can build and run a very successful business without having that micromanaging, being super busy every moment, you know, just getting your priorities straight, but and also being self aware enough about okay, what kind of team do I need to build? If I am that kind of personality, if I just want to make those four decisions, obviously, he needed more strong operators around him than maybe other founders did, right? He needed a slightly bigger management team and all of that. In art, when I was uh, writing poetry and all, I think this was always the case, waiting, giving yourself that openness to creative space, you know, taking a step back. That's the only way for inspiration to happen. I think that all of us as artists knew that, but I didn't realize that in a business setting, you know, that could also be optimized for, especially strategy, when you're thinking just on such long-term horizons and, you know, just trying to make three or four decisions that really make all the difference. You already covered it. What would have been my next question? How can one overcome the constant need or the urge to be productive or the, the need to be productive every day? So this would be your tips to have like cut down the micromanagement and just really focus on the most important stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think nowadays we have to create that space, right? So one thing I try to do is like, okay, fine. We're in a world where every half an hour might get calendared. So I will just calendar spaces where it's like, you know, don't bother me. And I'll just go for a walk or go do something or, you know, just think about those. I have a sticky note on my computer, which is like, you know, the three top questions. of And, and it's not, it doesn't change on a weekly basis. This is like a six month basis, kind of like top three, right? And so you have to create that space. Unfortunately, we can't necessarily get out of modern day workflows. You know, we can't just like remove ourselves, but we can take a lot of, conscious action to create that space, whether that's calendaring that space, whether that's morning routine, whether that's, you know, I have a strict rule of Sunday, um, I, I, I do zero things and, and take zero external media and try to really just spend time with books or writing or nature. We definitely need a break. I think that this hyper pace, the multitasking, it actually makes this neurologically less performance. While you are in India, you know, you are looking into this landscape very closely, right? So as an investor, what are some of the signals that you think that that are very unique while engaging with the Indian founders or entrepreneurs as well? I mean, you might be talking to them on a very regular basis. When you talk to them, what are those signals that you actually take you of? How do you judge them in your discussions or in your conversations with them? Yeah, I mean, I think I try not to judge anyone. Uh, I think as investors, we have to be super humble because look, at the end of the day, it's like entrepreneurs are much closer to the market than will be, right? They're on the ground every day. They're talking to customers. They know much more than we do. So I always come into the framework with that mindset. But one thing I've tried to explain a lot to Indian entrepreneurs, maybe even entrepreneurs everywhere though, is that I meet terrific founders all the time, you know, who are building really solid 30 to 50% year over year growth businesses, they have loving fans, they have loving customers, but it's just something that I don't see getting to $10 billion, right, or $1 billion. And I think that I try to take that extra time because every entrepreneur knows, you know, power laws and VC and all this stuff, but I don't think they understand the magnitude to which one 
$10 billion or $100 billion outcome basically determines 98% of a VC fund's destiny, right? So the extent to which really big outcomes actually influence our returns as a business is, I think, bigger than founders even internalized today. So sometimes, you know, I try to take that extra time to explain to them, it's you have a fantastic business. You shouldn't think that you don't. You are also a fantastic operator. But we are in the business of funding things that can get to 1 billion. And now 10 billion is a new 1 billion, right? There's so many, you know, technology companies now that are getting to that scale within a 10 year cycle. So if that's not the end goal, or we don't see a path to that getting to the end goal, or the founder ambition is not necessarily aligned to that, you know, then it's just not a good capital fit. There are other forms of capital that you can seek, which will support your very successful business for you to grow at the scale and pace that you require. And I would actually discourage and say, you know, because VC has those dynamics, it's not the right type of funding for many businesses. And in fact, if you try to fit your business into this funding model, instead of having a very healthy, let's say, 100 to 5, 300 crore, you know, kind of business, it might just die because the, the growth rates that this type of capital will push are just simply unsustainable for that model. So I think this is a little bit of a tangent, but genuinely, I think this is a conversation I have a lot in India, which is just you're a terrific founder and you're building a fantastic business. It's just simply not VC fundable, even though it's tech, even if it's fast growing, I think that bar for scale, leverage, And ultimate outcome is so high nowadays. And that's a market constraint of India in some ways as well, right? When you're in a country where only 30 million households have any kind of consumer spending power and the rest are, we call it the Indian middle class. But if you think about it, domestic help in India are middle class. They're making $200 a month. They're living, you know, just basically putting the necessities on the table. And so I cannot expect in this market for a lot of businesses to be able to quickly get to $500, $300 million in revenue. That's just the reality. Great insights. One of my last question would be that you are a poet yourself. Someday you will be a published author as well. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, Satya Nadella once said that he had two major passions in his life. One is poetry and the second one is computer science. So what are, what are some of your favorite business books or maybe novels or maybe poetry books that you have or you would like to recommend to our listeners as well? Oh, interesting. Book recommendations. I love that. I love so many books. It's going to be very, very difficult to choose. But I think that I enjoy books that are a little bit like riddles, where in some ways they're not fully understandable, but you can spend a lot of time reading them, rereading them, and trying to get an extra layer of meaning. So for instance, Milan Kundera is one of my favorite writers. I think very enigmatic kind of books. One of his top books is called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Italo Calvino, who is a writer and poet, but also someone who deeply studied physics. Marguerite Duras is one of my favorite authors. She's a French writer who writes about kind of just cross-colonial experiences, but also writing as an activity itself and has written some very, very beautiful and challenging books. Business books, I honestly just get the Blinkist (laughs) summary and stuff. I think with nonfiction, unless it's a topic, an academic topic that I want to get really deep into, like let's say I just really want to learn about genomics or I want to learn more about AI, I'll read something that's more like a textbook. I think sometimes I like to read biographies. I'm reading the Obama biography right now. But I think outside that, I think a lot of nonfiction can just be summarized. I think fiction is more of an immersive experience. And again, to Oscar's point, you know, is, is one of those tools I use to take me out of the kind of dopamine media of every day. So yeah, that's kind of my reading habits right now. 
Thanks, Kathy. Those were great nuggets of information again. And thank you for your time. We love talking to you. And I hope all our listeners will enjoy listening to you as well. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, guys. You'll have to tell me if they enjoyed or not. But it's been a wonderful conversation. And thank you for your time.